Hello, I'm Kristen Abel, co-founder and executive director of The Committed Project. The Committed Project is an organization created to help share the stories of professionals in higher education experiencing mental illness. By doing this, we hope to educate our fellow professionals about mental illness, increase support for those of us with mental illness, and stomp out the stigma associated with it. Today, we're doing a podcast with Gavin Henning, um, who has written for us before for The Committed Project. And I'm going to let him uh, tell you a little bit about himself. We're going to start kind of talking about, Gavin, your your career journey and, and your current role in higher ed. Sure. Uh, so currently, I'm a professor of higher education at New England College, which is a small private liberal arts institution in central New Hampshire. About 1,200 undergrad students and about 1,200 grad students. And most of our grad students are either online or hybrid. Um, and I direct a Master of Higher Ed program, and we have actually three different tracks. We have a hybrid track. Um, we have a, a fully online program, which we're starting in the fall. And we've got also have a concentration in campus public safety, which is something new. I'm excited about because it's one of the few in the, in the U.S. And we also direct a doctoral program um, where we have a K-12 track and a higher ed track. I'm in my second, uh, sixth year as a faculty member, uh, full-time faculty member. Before that, I spent over 20 years in full-time administration. Started out in a residence life um, as a hall director. Um, I was a hall director for seven years, um, partly because I oh, didn't know Lord. what the, That's yeah, a long time to yeah. be a hall director. <laughs> I, and I tell folks, probably three years too long. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I used to be a very, I used to be an extrovert, um, and now I'm a huge introvert. <laughs> uh, and it, partly because I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my career. Um, I kind of liked res life. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after that. And then, fortunately, this uh, concept, this wave of assessment, started in the late '90s, and early 2000s. And then that, I really found my niche with that. And so I moved into full-time student affairs assessment after my um, res life life, and did that at the University of New Hampshire for a few years. Got moved over into institutional research, um, which was, I was not happy about it at all. Yeah. The, academic, the provost was saying, why do we have an assessment person in student affairs, but not somebody in academic affairs? Um, and so they moved me over to IR, and I sat behind a desk doing a lot of uh, survey work, a lot of uh, uh, college guidebook surveys for uh, Peterson's and U.S. News World Report, all that boring uh, stuff. Never really did a lot of uh, assessment because the director of IR didn't really understand assessment. Uh, right. very, very old school. He thought assessment was a passing fad. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah. But he did say, he goes, I know you don't want to be here, but later on you'll appreciate having IR experience. And I'll have to say, even though I did enjoy it, I learned a lot about that, which has really helped me in my career. So it was, uh, it was good professionally, even though I didn't necessarily enjoy it. And then after that, I moved to Dartmouth College, where I did student affairs assessment again for a few years and had the exact same experience, where the provost said, we're going to oh move to institutional research so you can do assessment on the academic side. Did that for a couple of years. And then there was some reorganization in the student affairs division, and a new position was created, which was director of administration. And I was hired for that position. It was actually a perfect fit for what I enjoyed doing and what my skill set was. So I oversaw assessment, professional development, technology in the division, development, and there was actually a fundraising person, and then communication. And so it really was kind of the infrastructure of the division. I loved it. It was a great fit. Um, a new vice president came in and eliminated the position. Uh. And so, I was like, I want that did, position. That sounds like an amazing I know. position. <laughs> it was my, like my dream job. And the new VP just didn't really understand how it fits. She actually didn't have a student affairs background. And so I think that was part of it. And she didn't understand 
how that could really help support the work of the division. And so they were generous enough to give me a one-year appointment in institutional research, um, which was actually my worst experience ever because all I really did was analyze survey data that a master's student could do. Yeah. But then I had the opportunity to move to New England College in the full-time faculty position. I'd been teaching there as an adjunct um, since the master's program began in 2009. And then there was an opportunity, um, actually my previous supervisor from Dartmouth was the director of the doctoral program and she was moving on. And she said, we need somebody um, to actually start in a month. I know you're job searching, would you be interested? I said, yeah, it'd be great. And it actually cut my commute from 90 minutes down to 30 minutes. So that was another bonus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I did that. So it's been fun. It's, um, it was an interesting transition moving from administration to full-time faculty. But it's uh, been a great experience, and I still you know, keep my hand in student affairs work, working pretty closely with the student affairs division there. I continue to do assessment stuff as well. So I'm back doing uh, co-chairing co the assessment committee on campus, helping develop um, assessment structures for our, for our work. So it's fun. That's great. I really also appreciate how you were like, yeah, I hated that job, but I did learn something from it. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, it's funny because my career path has also been super windy. And so I went from res life to web development and people are like, I don't, how does that even happen? And I'm like, yeah. no, but like, I still use stuff that I learned from there, you know? Yeah. And I just, I think that that's something that is unique about higher ed. And no matter what position you're in, there's stuff that's applicable elsewhere. Right. You know, and, and that's actually, that's what I tell my master's students too, because, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about the um, the number of positions in higher ed for right. our students, you know, and actually one of my doctoral students is looking at that, you know, the retention in the field, and he's really looking at, is it about people getting burned out and things like that? And, and I th really think it's structural. You know, I talk about the field being like a decanter. At the bottom of the decanter, there are a lot of positions mm -hmm. for entry-level folks, but as you move up, there is a set number. And I mean, people just can't move up. So people have to move out of the field because they're just not jobs and they're not going to be. Absolutely. You know, so in the same ways, there's a structural issue. And that's what I tell my master's students is even if you don't stay in the field, almost everything you learn in this program, you can transfer to something else. And so that's one really good thing about it. Yeah. Um, is, you know, the working with people, the collaboration, even administration, you can work in any nonprofit using the, the stuff that we've learned. So it's really nice being very, having it all be applicable. Yeah, that's great. Okay, we're going to transition a little bit into uh, committed stuff now. So can you talk a little bit about your experience uh, with mental illness during your lifetime? Sure. You know, I, to be honest, I'm still f kind of figuring it out and trying to, you know, understand when, all are. <laughs> when, yeah, when it happened, how things happen, you know, so it's all right now, it's all retrospective, you know, and, and also talking with my wife, who's, you know, seen it from a different place than I have and probably more, much more objective um, than I have. I, you know, we, we probably figure it started 20, 25 years ago. It just was, it didn't know what it was. And I think for me, the other challenge was, I think the depression was, was masked by alcohol abuse. And now as I look back, I think that was a coping mechanism, a self-medication, but then it really didn't, it was masking what was really going on. So I suspect it probably, like I said, happened 20, 25 years ago, and I'm 50 now. So, you know, probably my, you know, when I was um, about 25, a couple of years before that, probably when I transitioned out of grad school and in a full-time position. I don't think there was any trigger. I just think that was, it was really more um, maturation. Sure. And, you know, the, you know, when I kind of think back, it, you know, what was my life like? And um, it's very different than it is now. It really, you know, I guess the best way to describe it is just, it was a dull. 
It was just a dulled sense, um, kind of like being in a fog, but not really. But it's just there was kind of like lack of um, ups and even kind of lacks of, there were some downs, but even like lacks of downs. It's almost like a monotone gray life. You know, there were, there was no contrast. Um, it was not in color, but, you know, just kept moving forward anyway. Um, kind of really flatlined. In some ways, sluggish, because there really wasn't a, a, a lot of energy. There are very few times where I, was, I couldn't get out of bed. There were times that I couldn't, but that wasn't necessarily the typical. It was just kind of, there just wasn't much to life. It was kind of blah and bland. So it's really, it, it didn't feel like anything. It, didn't, wasn't this, um, it wasn't being sick like something else where you could really tell something was wrong. Right. And, and I also think it came on gradually. And so it really became the normal. And like I said, I think with the alcohol abuse, I think that really masked what the issue was because the issue then became the alcohol, not the, what was underlying that. Right. You know, and it took a long time to figure out that's what the issue was. You know, and think, even thinking back um, about why alcohol, why that was the medication of choice, in many ways, it was, it's really odd because, and I was talking with a, you know, my therapist a few years ago about this, is that it, the alcohol actually helped bring life and contrast or to everything else. And so it had bring me joy. It got me, I got excited. It was upbeat, um, helped me connect with people. Yeah. Um, I was much more reflective than I was when I was not. I recognize that. I might, I might do the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's the weirdest thing in how, um, what role that played. And, you know, but in some ways there was, but there's a huge downside of that too. And, you know, I think about this, I mean, like a lot of other medications, there are, there's some really good things, but then there are these side effects. Right. Um, And alcohol just has tons of side effects. But, and it also kind of felt like it was a prison in terms of, I wanted to get out of the prison, but if, you know, with the use of alcohol, I wasn't really sure if I didn't um, use it, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the depth of life. And so there was really this, um, this yin and yang, this pull, push and pull about what do I want to do? How do I manage that? And just realize like, I don't know how to, to do that. And then after a while, my wife finally talked me into seeing um, a psych- psychologist. And then we did that probably for, that was probably in like thir- 2013, 2014. Had some good conversations. Um, we seemed like we got in a really good place. And she was like, yeah, I'm not sure if you really need to meet anymore. I'm like, okay. And so we stopped and my wife was like, why are you stopping? I'm like, well, because she said we're all done. I'm like, I don't know. Um, but again, I was in, I was in this. And so I couldn't see, I couldn't be outside of it saying, thinking that things have changed dramatically. I mean, it felt like they did, you know, but, but from my wife's perspective, not at all. And then the, you know, the alcohol abuse continued because um, I was still couldn't, I didn't really address the underlying issue. We really thought some of it was behavioral, never even imagined it was depression and started seeing another psychologist. And then probably about a, almost in a year after that, She's like, you know, and actually my wife had mentioned this. She's like, I wonder if it's depression. And I'm like, really? Like, it doesn't feel like it because it wasn't what I imagined depression right. was. Like, you didn't walk around you know? with a frown on your face all the time. Right, exactly. And it wasn't suicidal thoughts. I mean, it happened once in a while, but not all the time. So it wasn't this huge, really, really deep lows. And, and so I mentioned that with my psychologist. She goes, you know, you're my, you're, that might be right. So let's have, let's have you um, checked out. So I saw a psychiatrist. And he's like, yeah, that's what it is. And so, you know, the interesting thing is we were trying to deal it from a, um, a cognitive behavioral perspective rather than a chemistry, biological perspective. Right. And so once, 
once I made that transition, there was some, there was some change, but I continued in the pattern of alcohol abuse because that was what I had been using. And then, you know, now what, as I look back um, in retrospect, that actually, the alcohol abuse actually impacted the medication. Yeah. And so the medication couldn't be as helpful because there were the interaction with the alcohol. And then finally, um, almost a year ago, I just stopped drinking totally. And that was really what changed my life. It was interesting how I think I got a little bit better with the medication, but still not feeling really full of life. But once stopped using the alcohol, I think that's when the, the medication can really do its job. Yeah. And then things are much, much different now. And so, and actually that was 11 months ago today. Okay. And so um, it's been great to be in this place, which is very, very different than I've been in the, probably the last 20, 25 years. Yeah. And one thing that I want to point out, because I think that this is sometimes confusing to people, is that despite the fact that you were experiencing depression during that time, you were still functional. You were still doing oh, things. Yeah, and I'm t- you're successful, yeah. you know? And so I think sometimes people are like, well, you, it can't have been that bad because you obviously were still able to function and you're still able to be successful. And But sometimes that's just, I, I think that people experience it differently, of course. Right. For me, it was like, I have to get up and get out of bed and do stuff because if I don't, we don't have a house, you know, we don't have a roof over our heads. We don't, I can't right. my, get my kid to school, those sorts of things. And so it's almost like I, but I was on like autopilot for part of that. Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, the funny thing, I, I was president of ACPA while I was going through all this. Right. So I was able to manage that, manage, you know, some other things. So very, very high functioning and just figure out how to manage all that. And like you said, there's, there's, you still have to move forward. Um, in some ways, you don't really don't have any other options. But the, the quality of life was incredibly different. Yeah. You know, and I'd like to go back and relive, you know, all, all or any of that time, but it's not possible. Right. And at least you have time in front of you still, so. <laughs> right. And that's the way I look at it. You know, I still think, you know, my wife and I talk about that. And I'm like, I, I, I regret the past that I didn't figure this out earlier. But I'm glad I figured it out now rather than later. Yeah. And so, and I can't change the past, but all I can do is move forward. Because if I keep on dwelling in the past, that's not going to help either. Right. So I'm just glad I figured it out now. And now we've got, you know, I hope another 50 years in front of Absolutely. me. Absolutely. So Kate, you talked a little bit about medication. If you're comfortable with it, would you be yeah. willing to tell us a little bit about your path with that? Have you tried different ones or has it been kind of the same thing all along or what is that like? Um, I just had one, it's bupropion, um, butrin, um, and um, that's all I've done. We've, we had increased the dosage, so I'm actually at the max dosage, uh-huh. but we increased, but that was really what we did um, starting out and trying to figure out what was the best dosage. Um, but that's worked for me. So haven't had any side effects from that. That's great. Um, I still meet, um, and for folks that are not familiar, I have to meet quarterly, uh, every three months with my psychiatrist to check in and then get refills. So, um, so I'm always working with him. That's fantastic. I'm glad that's worked. I, I've been on multiple different ones. So it's <laughs> like, it's always reassuring to me that some people don't have to deal with that. <laughs> um, we, and we, we started kind of digging into this a little bit, but how do you think um, the depression um, or even alcoholism, how has that affected alcohol abuse? How has that affected your work? I mean, and that could be negative or it could be positive. Yeah. Oh, it's, I'm, it, I don't know if there's anything positive about it. 
I just think it was, like I said, a pretty high functioning. I have a pretty strong work ethic. So I always wanted to do the best job I can. I think there were some days, though, that I couldn't put in 100%. I was probably at 80% capacity for most of that time. Um, Seeing what I can do now, it's like, wow, imagine what I could have done then. And it's just, I think I just, you kind of just work through it. There was never any um, drinking at work or anything right. like that. Um, so that was it. Um, so I was able to manage the, that um, pretty well. Um, but it was, I think I just, I could, didn't reach the, the capacity I really could have for anything. Yeah. You know, now that I'm on medication and, and kind of have, feel like I've got things pretty much figured out, I'm able to do a lot more, um, a lot more functional. Like you said, I wasn't necessarily walking around with a frown on my face all the time, but I also wasn't a super upbeat person. So I'm not really thinking that people really wanted to hang out a lot uh, with me because I wasn't this you know, fun and exciting people like some other folks are. And so, um, but still did the work, did it effectively. My job was never at risk because of um, the depression or the alcohol abuse. Just continued to do the best job I could. And we don't have kids. And so for me, um, the job really is one of the things, like my career is one of the things I value a lot. And so that also brought me joy in many ways. So that was really what was important. Right. Have you noticed since you wrote for us, I know that several people got to see that. Has that had any impact on your work or your relationships with people at all? Yeah. As soon as the blog post came out, it was, I was, I, was amazed by how many people responded and emailed me. It was, um, yeah. it was fascinating, actually. You know, there were um, faculty colleagues who said, I'm going to use this in my class. Oh, great. Um, and actually, I use it in my class now, too. So I use it in my class on, on college students. Um, so when we talk about different social identities, I also want them to know about some of this stuff. And um, so it was great to hear that. It was I got a lot of um, Facebook posts from folks um, saying, Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's yeah. good, you know, so it validated other people's experience. I mean, it was difficult being vulnerable. Uh-huh. Um, just how like doing this podcast is, is, is kind of the same way. But the affirmation that came from that was really surprising. So that really um, was really took, balanced out the, the vulnerability piece. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it was it very, very fascinating, um, which demonstrated to me there are a lot of people that have the similar issues. We just don't see it or we don't talk about it. Because it's not what usually comes up at, you know, right. meeting, conversation, chit-chat. You know, kids soccer does. Um, maybe what's, what a, a partner or spouse is, go, is doing, but not like, yeah, so how's your melting illness today? Yeah. That doesn't necessarily really come up. I mean, and interestingly, health is, or other health issues, like physical illnesses, are more likely to come up with mental health issues. Right. You know, so I was in bed all weekend being sick. Yeah. I, I've told people that, but I, I didn't tell people I was all in bed all day with depression. Exactly. Because um, that just, it, I don't, we just don't talk about it that way. Yeah. I, um, I feel like there's like different levels of vulnerability in there too. Like there's one with, for me, for writing, like is one thing because there's still like this screen between me and the other people. Yeah. And then when people come up and talk to me face to face about what I've written afterwards, it like freaks me out. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, now I'm like completely naked here, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things since I am extremely public about uh, my experiences with mental illness, like one of the things that I do a lot of at work is is advocating for my coworkers and making sure that our space um, and our team has what they need to support them. Mm-hmm. 
we have a few folks uh, on the staff who experience different illnesses. And so I both love that. Like, I feel like that's the positive thing about mine, right? Is that yeah, it's given me a true. glimpse yep. into what other people are experiencing, but that's more from being open about it than it is from the illness right. itself. I mean, yep. it, like really yep. when I stretch it. So, but it, it is, I think for me, the, one of the hardest things I did was um, I did the Pachacacha at ACPA mm-hmm. four, three, four years ago now. I, I yeah, think it was, it was 2014. Yeah. And I talked about it and I was all like going up to it. I was like writing up my speech. I'm like, it'll be great. I'm going to be fine. It'll be just like writing a blog post. And then I like was in the room with the stage and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to tell 400 people that I have depression. <laughs> like, what am I doing? Right. And so it just is, um, it, the fact that even though I talk about, there's nothing to be ashamed of, obviously there's still this societal stigma around it and we're aware of that. And so we try to be open about it, but we still censor ourselves around it too. Yeah. You know, and Kristen, that when you, that pachacacha was what gave me courage to write though. And so I'm glad you did that because if you hadn't have done that and I hadn't seen that, I wouldn't have even thought about writing the blog post. And so I think in many ways, I see it as this, almost this pay it forward kind of thing. So you, you gave me courage by doing that. And then me writing the blog post gave somebody else courage to maybe even share that with somebody. Um, and so I think by doing that, I mean, that's how we can help reduce the stigma. And, and even the weird thing is, even though I don't, I don't, I, there's definitely a stigma out there and it doesn't bother me that much. It's still difficult to do. Uh, and even in our field, which is really about all about self-care is really, they're probably less stigmatized in our field than anywhere else. Right. Um, it, it's still difficult. Yeah. And I think we all have a lot of, you know, personal baggage related to it that we have to work through individually too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I still... I've gotten a little bit better, but I had a conversation with my boss recently where I was like, yeah, sometimes when I call in sick, I'm not calling in sick for a cold, even though I tell you it's a cold, you know, and she was like, (laughs) she was like, yeah, I sometimes wonder, she goes, but I never want to push you on that, but know that you can tell me if you're having a bad day and it would be better for you to be at home. She goes, I don't really want to deal with you on a bad day of your depression either, to be honest. (laughs) So, Yeah. But it, it's that, it's almost like a, I almost have to, st- I stop myself before I am fully open about it. There was a, I think it was like one of those viral posts that was going around about some boss that was like, I'm taking mental, a mental health day because my depression is bad or something like that. Like they were really open with their employees. And so I think it was a couple months ago after I saw that, like that kind of gave me the courage like a few months ago when I sent the email and I sent it to my boss and my two staff members. I said, my depression is really bad today, and I need a day to not be in the office for this, to mm-hmm. kind of get recentered. And so it was like, I like hit send, and I was like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? <laughs> but it also felt really good. And the next day, they were like, how are you doing? Like, I, and, and it genuinely was, how is your mental illness today? You know, it wasn't yeah. about a physical illness. And Um, Because of that, you know, when people in our office have an anxiety attack or, you know, are dealing with their own depression or other issues, like they've been much more open about that. And so we're able to, you know, sometimes that means reshifting meetings. If we've got a big client meeting and we know that that person is a little off that day, 
we can shift that, you know, uh, with some, a little bit of flexibility, we've got some of that shifted a day or two, you know, and then give them that healing space. Well, yeah, which would be the same thing if somebody were had the cold or the flu. Exactly. You know, we're not, we know they're not at a hundred percent. So let's move things around to address it. And I still can't figure out why we keep those two things, mental illness separate from physical illness. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. It's something about our brains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's it definitely cultural. And, and um, it's interesting. We don't necessarily think of people being less than because they have a physical illness, be it chronic or acute. Right. I'm not sure why we do that um, for mental illness either. Yeah. It's a mystery to me. Yeah. But it is. I think that, and I encourage this with others, like, you know, people who are like, well, I want to be totally as open as you are. And I'm like, understand that I still have, 40 years of societal expectations that I not be open about it that I'm carrying with me too. So when I choose to be open, I'm doing it despite the fact that I don't always feel comfortable with that. And I think that people don't always, they're like, Oh, you're obviously very comfortable talking about this. And I'm like, no, I'm not like I do it in spite of that. So what, and you kind of talked about like what your writing did and, and why you, why you want to pay it forward a little bit, but, what about this particular podcast? What did you, why did you want to do that with us today? I thought a lot about it. You know, I saw the Facebook post and I'm like, should I write back to her? Yes, no. And then like, I think it was a week or two later, somebody reposted it. I'm like, yeah, I've got to do it. And I think it was, it was really about uh, trying to provide the same courage that you provided in your Pachaka job. And Knowing that I've held positions of leadership, you know, president of ACPA, currently president of CAS, um, and that having somebody that has, like you said, has been successful in certain ways, that that helps um, change the the perception that is pe- that people that are successful don't have that, and perhaps maybe even pri- provide some courage for folks to say, well, if Gavin can do it, then I can do it, and so um, you know, and, and some people. The vulnerability may be a little bit more because of the positions I hold. But then the other thing I realized that it, I'm in a position of power and privilege. I, I'm privileged because of some of the leadership roles I, I've held and I hold now, that there's some responsibility that goes with that. And so I think to utilize some of that, that privilege um, to get the word out, I think is helpful. And that's why I wanted to do it with my name and not do it anonymously because I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And we appreciate that. I think um, one of the things that's also, you are in a, or a position of privilege. And what's interesting with mental health is that it tends to be much easier for women, especially white women, I should say, to share about mental health um, or, mm-hmm. or mental illness. Um, and there, but there's this kind of, um, it's almost like the like mental illness is tied to machismo in, in a way yeah. for men. Yeah, and I think it's probably related to this whole other big picture of hyper-masculinity, hyper that you've got to be great at everything. Right. And, um, and being mentally ill is a weakness, and men can't show weakness. Um, and that's why it's probably you know, really difficult for men to even be vulnerable, is because that's not what's expected in our society. So those of us, particularly white heterosexual cisgender men have to do that so we can demonstrate that that is okay. Yeah. But it, it, there is a risk to that. Um, but, you know, and then again, I think about, what, so what is that risk? Are people going to think differently of me? Maybe. 
but I'm 50 years old. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I've done what I, w I wanted to do um, career-wise. I feel, you know, I'm at a different place in terms of my personal journey. You know, if this was 20 years ago, that would be different probably. Right. And so, and I don't necessarily feel like I have anything to prove anymore. And so it's a little bit more comfortable. But I think the more that people that both are in positions of power and privilege or hold privileged identities have a responsibility to do these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, as I've said multiple times, we appreciate that, that you see that and that you, you follow through on that. So if you could suggest one thing that the higher ed community could do um, to decrease that stigma that we've talked about around mental illness or be a better place for people with mental illness to work, what, what might that be? You know, I thought a lot about this, and I'm, you know, we're overall, we're a, we're a field that's very welcome, accommodating. We really are all about self-care. Um, you know, we, even though I think as a field, we overwork ourselves because we care so much. So we have to push ourselves for the self-care. So I'm trying to think about what would it be? You know, would it be doing presentations? Would it be um, having tracks at conferences? What I realize, and I think it's... Um, I go back to how I incorporate the, my blog post in my class that I teach. I think we can actually do a little bit more in grad prep programs. Um, and I'm not talking about a class on mental illness, but I'm talking about, you know, so I, in almost every program in my program as well, there's a, a theory class. And we really look at theory and social identities. And I think there's an opportunity in courses like that to talk about mental illness in the same conversation we talk about disability but being more, um, being more aware of it and bringing it more to the surface. We talk about disability um, as part of, we're not as good as we used to, because um, still most of the conversation around identity and social identities, around race, ethnicity, right. um, sexual identity, things like that. We're getting better with the gender piece of it. Um, and we say, and we kind of, it seems like we throw on ability, disability. But even those conversations really primarily, in my experience, revolve around um, about mobi mobility. Um, and so making sure that people can get around on campus or making sure that presentations are accessible to people with um, visual disabilities. And I think we need to do a better job thinking about all types of disability and talking about mental illness. Because right now, according to a 2017 um, survey from the National College Health Assessment, 17% of college students report being diagnosed and or, and or treated. That's almost one in five people that have actually been diagnosed or treated with depression. And how many are That's, not? Exactly. Yeah. How many are not? And so there's got to be, I mean, for there, how many people were like me which didn't even, who didn't even realize that's what it was? Right. And so I think it's certainly an issue for our students. So if we begin to think, frame this as an issue for our students and try to, and could be something that we are really, we are, at, we are dealing with every single day with our students, that's going to help us become more aware with our colleagues as well. And the more I think about this in terms of um, permeating the field, the more we can prepare our, our graduates who are going to be the, the professionals in a couple of years. If we keep doing that, by at some point, all the professionals in the field are going to have that information. Yeah. And so rather than trying to educate the people that are out there now, I call it the kind of investment in the future. Let's really help to educate our grad students so they know about it. And then when we all leave the field, everybody in the field will have that information. Right. And so I think that might be some of the, maybe the easiest way it makes, it makes logical sense and it's still uh, student-centered. Yeah. And so that's what I would, I would suggest. I, you know, obviously we have to do things like this too and talk about it. But I think for those of us where, where 
this journey is that we're still going through it. It's still difficult for us to talk about it. Even if we put it in that frame, in some ways it, um, it makes it external. So it'd be a lot easier for me to talk about mental illness in my class on identities than it would be for me to come out and, and talk about that. Right. Um, even though I have, it's easier to do that. And so that might be um, a way to think about doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You're actually the second person that I've talked to. I know somebody else, we've had some grad students reach out and say that, oh, we had to read your committed book in our ah. our class, you know, and I was like, I love that idea. That's so great that we're yeah. that you're talking about it at that at that level. So I really I think that you're right. It does have a lot of ability to spread throughout the field if we do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- and those grad students are going everywhere, you know. Right. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, like we and we as we were chatting before is like people are not going to see in the field either. So if they take that information outside of the field, that even helps permeate our entire society, not just our field. Absolutely. I love it. Let's make that <laughs> let's make that happen, Gavin. <laughs> okay, we will. Well, thank you again. Oh, wait, I, I'm supposed to, I forgot one last thing. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you would like to make sure people know about mental illness, about yourself, about any of, of this that we've been talking about? I think we've talked about this briefly, but just to reiterate, everybody is on their own journey. And so it's, like you said, it's different. Everybody experiences it differently. Um, I think I've been um, fortunate that I've only had to deal with one medication. Uh, I think people have it, it's like any other chronic illness, there are multiple levels. Some people have it worse than others. Um, it affects all of it, people differently. We're at different places in sharing that. I still feel like I, while I've come to terms with it personally, I'm still not as, I have not as fully reflective as I probably, as I want to be. Um, so I'm kind of still working through that stuff. And so for those that are people that are supporting individuals, with mental illness, just keep that in mind. Um, and, and it's like anything else, people are going to be different different places on the continuum. Um, just keep that in mind to, to provide support. Absolutely. Well, now I will say my thank yous. Thank you so much uh, for doing this with me today. Um, I really appreciate everything that you shared, both about yourself and, and about your ideas. And I really loved that idea of working with this undergrad classes. And we just appreciate your support of, of the committed project and really appreciate you sharing with us and sharing out our information as well. So thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity and I'm, I'm glad to help. Thanks for listening to The Committed Podcast, where we're working to fight stigma for professionals working in higher education. You can find more of our work on our website, www.thecommittedproject.org, and come say hi on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by shooting us a message at The Committed Project. If you liked what you heard or want to reach our contributors and let them know and thank them for contributing, (laughs) you can leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening. We hope that you'll share this story with someone you care about in higher education. If you or someone you know is in need of help, please contact the Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255.